chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. If you're wondering, what should I memorize from the scriptures? What should I memorize from the scriptures? Well, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 would be a great place to start your memory work if you don't have a lot of Bible verses memorized. I say that a lot. There's every passage of scripture could uh, really benefit you if you memorize it. But remember, in Ephesians 4, verses 17, really through the end, through 32, we heard, not the old man, the new man. Don't steal, but work so that you have something for yourself and work hard so you have something to share with others. The opposite of theft is more productivity on your part to give to others. That's the old man theft, the new man giving because you're hardworking. These are the things in Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. What do you say? How does your mouth work? It either works for God or it works for God's enemy. Of course, in the new man, you need to uh, speak wisely let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth in verse 29 the th the summary of the old man and the old life i mean is let the let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice that's verse 31 of ephesians 4 it's a great summary of what you say what you do what you think all of it the whole person is in view and sin is a choice but it's a choice that you make in all these different ways and what you think and what you say and what you do and let it be put away from you. Reject personal sin as an option. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. known, Good affectioned. Tender-hearted. Meaning feel kindness. Feel, feel affectionate toward each other. That's right. The Apostle Paul commands affection. Jesus commands affection. Think about that. We're talking about some profound anthropology if I can command affection. But he does. Be tenderhearted, kind-hearted toward one another, forgiving each other. And then the rationale, the forgiveness rationale of Ephesians 4.32. How can I forgive this thing that's been done to me? Do you not understand? I have been defrauded thousands or whatever. They have hurt me. They have hurt me so bad. And it hurts. And I think about it and then it hurts some more. And then I do something else and I think about it again and it hurts. And how can I forgive someone that has hurt me? Because that's the point. Forgive one another who's hurt you, you Christians that hurt each other. How do I do it? Well, I think about Jesus. It's always the answer. Go back to the Lord. And what about him? Well, in verse 32, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So instead of looking at the other person's debt, now I know you're not thinking of it that way. You're thinking this hurts. But let's take it a step further and think. The reason it hurts is because they did this and there's a debt. They are wrong. They've wronged me and this should be set right. And before we ever go through all that rigmarole, let's go back to the cross and what God set right on your account that he, he had against you. And so instead of thinking, this is always the switch, instead of self-righteously thinking of what the other person owes, start thinking about what's been paid off on your account. Every time you point the finger, there's three more fingers pointing back at you, right? You know that old saying? So you switch from thinking about what they owe to what you don't owe anymore because Jesus paid it all. And that's the forgiveness rationale for Christians. I'll say it again. You don't think about what they owe you. They owe me an apology. That's not your business right now. Think about what Christ has accomplished to pay off your debt. 
And then when you, if you really, well, yeah, yeah, I got that. Think about it. Think about it. You deserve the lake of fire for calling your brother a fool. And I know that you and I have done a lot worse than call our brother a fool, right? Sin is the problem. And the person did sin against you. Fine. They don't, they just don't know what they did. Yeah. You growing spiritually will mean you come more and more aware, become more aware of what your sin means to God and the wrath of God on the cross paying where Jesus paid for your sins. It's a growth process. The more we become aware of what it means that Jesus died for our sins. The first thing we believed, the new birth, when I first believed it as a kid, life, I'm growing to know what this means that I owed a billion and, and this person owes me $10 and Jesus forgave a billion. So that's the Christian forgiveness rationale. We really have to hit that because we need to hold ourselves accountable to be Christians in terms of forgiveness. If you live your life by feelings instead of truth, and there's a huge difference. Sometimes you might feel good about the truth, but very often, and I'll show you on the French revolution or the modern day American French revolution, we are not necessarily feeling along with the truth all the time. In fact, it's a lot of times very different because there's a str I think there's a very strong connection between your sinful nature, your flesh and your feelings. And if you give in to the flesh and you just become a product of what your, your urges are, that's just lust. That's definitely connected to your feelings. I hope you can see that. I mean, nobody ever commits a personal sin. They don't feel like doing, know what I mean? Why'd you hit your brother? I don't know. Didn't you feel like it? Well, yeah, well, here we are. Why'd you feel like I was angry? He did. Some, he took my eraser, whatever. And so, so this is the thing about forgiveness. You have to think it's a rationale. You have to, it's a thought process. Jesus paid my sins. And so everybody else gets a blank check with me is what that means. No, 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 no. It's that's too much pastor. That's too much. It's not too much. I didn't say you trust them. I didn't say you give them your kids for the weekend right? I didn't say you trust them to, to drive your car. In some cases, not even to wash your car, right? But you can forgive them. And that means to let it go. Whatever you have against them, let it go. Knowing their character, knowing that there's limitations, don't, don't set them up for a, for a fall with, with uh, trusting them with something you shouldn't. Different question. Not, it's not that I don't forgive you. I don't hold against you, but I know you. <laughs> and that's a little bit different. Anyway, I want you to be forgiving. And I know that if you live by feelings, when you're hurt, you will not be forgiving. You have to switch to thinking. And that's why the Bible is given to us as a book, a beautiful book, a book of books, but you have to read it and think its thoughts. Now, here we are in the therefore, all that time, Pastor Dave, setting up the therefore in Ephesians chapter five, verses one and two, the therefore is a command. I put the commands in red, therefore on the basis of putting off the old and, and, and living the new life, putting on the new man in Christ, therefore be imitators of God. Memetai as an imperative, a constant abiding responsibility. He's saying you and I need to be this. We need to be imitators of God. I once read an article in a respected, trusted, conservative, Bible-believing, grace-oriented uh, journal that said, imitation is imitation. You need to really experience the, you know, the, the, the power of the Spirit or something. It was denying that we are called to imitate God. And so what I thought was, but Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators of God. And what that means is you need to act like your dad. That's what it means. 
you and I need to act like our dad. And I don't mean putting people in the lake of fire when they don't believe in Christ at the end of time. You need to act like your dad in a specific sense. What's that specific sense? Well, Paul doesn't leave us hanging and we're not supposed to just assume, oh, I'm going to imitate God. I'm going to make authoritative declarations that everyone is responsible to agree with. You ever have any friends like that? Well, I'm just a Christian and I'm just going to tell you how it is just like God does. Well, the problem with that is that you're usurping God, you're taking his place, and that's not the sense in which we're to imitate God. I once had a friend say that if we're going to teach the word, then we need to do it like Jesus, who taught with authority and shocked the Pharisees and the Sadducees with the authoritative teaching that he was delivering. You believe this, but my father in heaven says this. And so the point was, we need to be absolutely dogmatic and authoritative about everything we say, or we're not preaching like Jesus preached. And I want to say something about that. When we know, we know. When we don't understand, when we don't know, we don't know. And there's levels of understanding and certainty. But Jesus never struggled with that as God the Son teaching as a prophet, representing the Father and saying the words that his Father told him to say. And so there's a little bit of a difference between something occurred to me and I say it and Jesus teaching it with authority because he's God the Son calling Israel to, to the kingdom offer. And, and so I would just, you can't imitate God in omnipotence. You can't imitate God in sovereignty. You can't imitate God in uh, a lot of things. You don't have the execution of perfect righteousness and absolute justice. We imitate him as we can in these things, but the specific thing that Paul is going for, as you know, is love. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, I know that um, you will watch how children behave and draw conclusions about how their parents behave just by watching the kids. Know what I mean? We'll do that. My kids, for example, let me give you a very personal uh, example that'll make everybody uncomfortable. Just kidding. My kids will say y'all. They'll say y'all. I love that they say y'all. It's, it's, it's more communicative than standard English because it's the second person plural. And if you want to uh, go beyond that to the, and, and I've heard people say, no, that's the singular, but it's really plural, you, plural, y'all. And we don't have that in English. We have you singular or you plural and it's ambiguous and English is a mess. So the textative plural y'all and the textative, you know, um, uh, textative, that's, that's a technical uh, term that I invented. The textative plural y'all, uh, because in grammar studies, you learn all these, you know, all these designations, the heuristic uh, present and all that. But my kids say it because they heard me say it, not because they heard all y'all say it. All y'all don't say it. Some of y'all say it, but not all y'all say it. See, that's the superlative textative plural. That's what I was trying to think of. The all of y'all is making sure that nobody's left out, but y'all should cover it, but we sometimes want to be more colorful. All of y'all. So I like that my kids say y'all, but when I get together with my mother, who may well be watching, or she's going to catch this later, she loves when I <laughs> start illustrating with her. With my mom, she'll hear... Uh, one of our kids say, for example, um, you, when you were little, you said, um, <laughs> let's go down the stairs. Remember that? 
Let's go down the stairs. And my mother heard him say that. She hadn't been around because they're down in Texas. So she heard him say that and she said, I beg your pardon. What did you just say? It sounded something like that. And, and, and he said, let's go down the stairs. And he, he had a list, but it was adorable, the stairs. And um, he was barely making R's. She said, honey, we have to get you down to Texas. <laughs> the stairs. But um, anyway, you act like your parents... I'm kind of doing that now as I joke around with you. You act like your parents because they raise you because they're your, they're your parents. So um, if you came to our church, you knew the pastor was from Texas with a recovering, you know, recovering Texas accent a little bit. And, um, and you heard kids in the, in the outside say, hey, y'all get together. You might say, that's one of them pastor's kids. That's one of those kids that belongs to that daddy because he acts like his dad. And um, I recently had friends checking us out online say it was very um, traditional, very, I don't know, um, elevated. It was, you know, you're in a suit, you're teaching the Bible. And then all of a sudden you started saying y'all and we were like, that just doesn't fit. Those, those things don't go together. And, and I said, oh, contraire, my dear, that's how they're going to speak in heaven. But anyway, um, <laughs> Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And the point he's making is the personal relationship you have with God. Here's what happens when I commit personal sin. I start forfeiting. I make a choice to forfeit an abiding rapport with my father. I forfeit through personal sin that experience, not not the reality, but the experience of a relationship. I slam the door in his face. That's what he's saying. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Now, in red, I put the imperatives, the commands of Scripture. So it's, it's pretty colors. The commands are in red, not red letters like Jesus speaking, but just for this purpose. The commands are in red because all through the spiritual life material, when Paul teaches, he's giving commands. So you and I are now responsible to obey the command to imitate God, the Father, as beloved children and so walk in love just as in the same way that Christ loved us. Now, have you ever heard that before that you love the way Christ loved? Yeah, John 13, 34, the new commandment I give you. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. Christian love is self-sacrificial. It's in the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and it is to the standard of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll say it again. Christian love is in the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and it is to the standard of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what we're called to do here. Now, in love, in love is a bad phrase in English because it means I can't help it. A little more Southern for you. I can't help, you know, Elvis, I can't help falling in love. That's what we mean by in love is I think I'm falling in love, which means whatever else is going on, the heart wants what the heart wants. (laughs) <laughs> I can't help it. That's the idea of in love in our culture. And um, I understand emotional hangups and like I, you know, I'm kind of hung up on someone and starting to feel possessive or whatever this, these things are that are wonderful emotions God designed for the, you know, his institution of marriage between one man and one woman and you know. But, um, but that's not what he's talking about here when he says walk in love. This is a way of saying it's, it's actually a dative of sphere And you're not supposed to imagine like a a metaphysical sphere around you of love as an actual thing. You're supposed to say that everything about me inside out is characterized by it. 
that's what the sphere of walking in love means. And it, you knew that when you read it in English, walk in love. And so this is the great book by Norm Geisler and Frank Turek, uh, Love is Always Right. When you're wondering, what will I do now? My usual answer is, uh, I'll start thinking through, if you ask me for advice, what's the, what does love say? What is the loving choice? Because Jesus is gonna evaluate us at the Bama seat for how we loved. Your spiritual gifts in, or in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 are about love in chapter 13. And the way you love people in the body of Christ is by exercising your gift because it advances them and, and matures them in the Lord. So you walk in love is the whole watchword. And I'm spending a little time on this, but this is so vital that we better get about uh, learning of the love of God. Right? This is, this is very important practical theology. So how, what sense do we have that God is love and that we imitate God as love? What's the sense? Right here, just as Christ loved us and bam, gave himself for us. Gave, Jesus gave himself as our substitute in our place. That's what it means. So to love is self-sacrificial. And what did he give himself as, as your substitute for? In what sense? Well, you needed God's righteousness applied to your account to have a relationship with him. And so at the cross, then you also need your sins taken away. And all the things that the cross accomplished where Jesus gave himself for you, you need all the benefits that amount to a personal relationship with the Father. That's what you needed. That's what God the Father wanted for you. That's what Jesus Christ supplied at the cross because it's what you needed, because it's what you're made for, because that's what life is really about. See, your life matters. All of us. I, we need to make t-shirts. Your life matters. I'm not sure what color to print the t-shirts in. I think we'll make them green and blue or something. Your life matters. Because God wants a relationship with you, and that's the gospel. This is what the cross accomplished. So, I mean, I'm summarizing, making a huge summary to say all that Jesus accomplished at the cross amounts to you having an eternal, personal relationship with God. But that's, that's what we mean by when we talk about salvation. Understanding that this is God's desire for you and that Jesus had to do the cross work, the hard thing at the cross, that he prayed the Father not make him go through. If it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Understanding that that's what we're talking about when we're saying walk in love. The way you do it is not by trying to figure out who to love. Jesus taught that. Who's my, who's my neighbor? Well, who was a neighbor to you? Who's acting like a neighbor? It's not the question, who do I love? The question is, how does the cross affect me? What does God want for me? And what does God want for the other? And so you can tell this is the same thing as the Great Commission. It's the same thing as Matthew 28. The unbeliever needs righteousness, doesn't have any of his own. The unbeliever needs his sins forgiven. The unbeliever needs eternal life imparted to him. The unbeliever needs a relationship with God. And as we read in Ephesians 4, it does not have one. Even if they feel like they're spiritual, the Bible says they don't have a relationship with God. Even if they're religious in their practices, but they don't have Christ, they don't have a relationship with God. So what you do with an unbeliever in the love of God, it's very functional. What do I do with this? You desire and act on their conversion, on their salvation, on their coming to know Jesus as their savior, culminating, as Jesus says, with a baptism. 
The person believes in this age, in this time, is baptized by the Spirit. That's a dry baptism. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, where you're identified with Jesus Christ and it makes you the church, makes you part of this body of Christ. And then, because you have a believer, we publicly demonstrate this with a testimony, a ritual testimony called water baptism. But that's the last step of this process of someone coming to Christ, a believer. That's what the unbeliever needs. And so God sent his son to die for our sins so that we would have this relationship. That's what the father wants. So that's what you are about as you walk in love. This is the great commission. Well, what about believers? Well, they're all good because they're all saved. So they're going to heaven. So just sit the pew. You know, we should make more comfortable seats for you to ride out till, you know, till you're meeting with our savior absent from the body and present with the Lord. But you know, um, no, he said, and teaching them to keep all that I've commanded you. So we teach. And then we teach some more and we teach some more. Peter said, um, yes, Lord, I love you. And Jesus said, okay, then feed my sheep. He didn't say shepherd my sheep or tend my sheep the first time. He said, feed my sheep. And then he said, shepherd my sheep. And then he said, feed my sheep. Because what a shepherd does, he feeds. We check that out in Psalm 23. So here's the thing. You provide what God says the person needs. And the ultimate need is eternal life. And the unbeliever needs eternal life by receiving Christ as Savior through a gospel presentation and eventual, um, and, 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 and you signify that, understand, signify that through a baptism, Matthew 28, 19, and then you teach the believer to keep, observe all that Jesus commanded. And that's why we're in the Christian life of Paul. We're studying the life of Paul sequentially through Acts and all the epistles that he wrote where he would have written them in the historical sequence because we have this thesis that we're demonstrating that Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not Pauline Christians, we're Christians. And so we are under Paul and John and Peter. And, and that's, this is, I just want you to see this walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself as a substitute for us has a specific way to think about the people around you. Now, being wise fishermen, we have to do a couple of things. We never want to lose sight of our goal that this conversation I'm having with this unbeliever, I want them to come to Christ. That's what I want. I love this person. I'm choosing to want the best for them. That's Christian love. But I'm going to be a wise fisherman and try not to scare the fish away. Right? At the same time, I'm not going to buy into the fish's argument and import a bunch of bad ideas that are just unbelief. There's a futility of thinking before someone has Christ, according to Ephesians 4 and Romans 1. And so we don't want to buy into the argument, but we want to keep the conversation going. And that is to be as gentle as doves, but as wise as serpents. So Jesus did this um, for us, and it's an offering and a sacrifice to God for a fragrant aroma. There's more to Christian love than just being self-sacrificial. There's being self-sacrificial and God's interest to the other person in an act of love and worship to God. So now it's not just that I'm concerned for this person's salvation, but I'm concerned for this person's salvation for my father's account because I'm concerned about my father. And now it's not just me and you. Okay, okay, y'all, it's not just me and you, it's me, for God's sake, toward you, for me in God's power, toward you. And so this is, you, every little piece is helpful here. 
Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, so act like your dad, and walk in love, and you have an example in Jesus, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a substitute, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a fragrant aroma. Isn't that fun? And now we have a little bit of time left in our, in our discussion this morning, and I'm going to actually be able to get through the next little paragraph. Now, here's the alternative in three through six is the sons of disobedience in Ephesians five, three through six. My English Bible says, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. There must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks for this, you know, with certainty that no immoral or impure or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And I notice, stop my paragraph, because Paul helps us out every time with a big therefore in verse 7. What do you do then as a consequence? So let's talk about the theology, the anthropology, if you will, the biblical anthropology of God's wrath and our conduct. Now, the first thing is going to be very offensive uh, if you're sensitive and not biblical, uh, biblically sensitive is this idea of uh, fornication. The word is fornication and it is, it's the Greek word porneia. And it means that contact, contact physically designed for marriage between a man and a woman that is conducted outside of marriage in any case. Pastor Dave believes that this word porneia is the explanation for the social ills that everyone's decrying in our culture today. I believe that this wantonness that's given over to lust. The kids are going to do what they want to do. So whatever it explains fatherlessness in the inner city. It explains the motivation. I believe in most cases for abortion, it explains the transmission of AIDS throughout the world, especially in, uh, in the, in the third world it explains why this is so common and why it's sexual transmitted diseases. There are so many problems that we can point out that if men would control themselves, they would marry and then enjoy the blessing of marriage according to God's design. And therefore, no porneia, no fornication, only God's design of blessing for marriage. Notice I'm talking uh, the way I'm talking because of the children present. That's why I'm talking that way. But this, this design of God of the physical blessing of marriage is not merely for procreation. It is for blessing. It is for uh, rapport. It's for enjoyment. It's a physical expression of, of the, all the things that we've, we have in God's design of, uh, of love between a husband and wife. But that's what it is. And so used outside of its design, you know what we call that when you take something good and you use it for sin or use it for uh, a purpose it wasn't designed for. What do we call that? We call that a perversion. Ugh. Well, that just means kinky or something. <laughs> perversion means misusing something against its design in a way that hurts it, that, that twists it, that, that fouls it. And that's what happens every time the kids just do whatever the kids want to do. That's what's going on. And while it's not that big a deal, it really is that big a deal. It's how humans are made. <laughs> okay, this is, this is the most uh, interesting thing that Satan attacks us through this avenue. He did it in the Garden of Eden, I'm convinced. I think there's a lot of it's not just that part of the marriage, but he attacked the woman and then got the man to follow the woman. We give the devil an opportunity in 1 Corinthians 7. God 
tells us little hints through the Bible that Satan attacks the human race in this area. It's an interesting interface between the physical and the spiritual. It's one of the greatest physical blessings, enjoyments in life and all that it is. But this is the problem. Now, Paul says, you're not supposed to eat lunch with a pornea person. First Corinthians five, you're not supposed to share a meal with someone that is lifestyle sin in this area, sexual sin. And he says, I don't mean when I wrote you about this, I didn't mean the people of the world, the pornea people of the world, lifestyle fornication. I meant the brother, the one called brother. Your Bible says so-called brother because the translator can't accept that these are Christians that are doing this nastiness. They are. They're Christians that are headed toward the sin, sin unto death. They're Christians under God's discipline. And that's why Paul says these should not be named, must not be named among you. It's a, it's a command because you could have it named among you and you're not supposed to. That's 1 Corinthians 5. But I wanted to say Paul tells you that I wasn't talking about the people of this world. If you want to get away from the people of this world, the cosmos, Satan's system of deceit that is affecting all the nations and all the cultures. If you want to get away from Pornea people, you have to leave the world. It was universal then. Back then, the kids just did whatever the kids wanted to do. It's universal today. Have you looked? Do you know what, what the Old Testament does with this? Are you aware of why the Joshua conquest to kick out the Canaanites? It was the phallic cult. Phallic is a, an adjective from the Latin that means male physiology. Everybody tracking on male physiology that needs to be tracking on that? These people are worshiping pornea, fornication. That's what the Baal cult, Baal cult was. And they would sacrifice their children because they knew that this act between a man and woman brings children and that's fertility and they want their crops to grow. And so they satanically, someone had invented this myth, this legend that the Baal, the, the, the sun god, wants to see a show up on the high places. And if he sees what he likes to see, then he'll put seed in the clouds uh, and will get fertility in the crops. This is the Baal, the Canaanite religion that God sends his lawnmower of Israel in to completely remove from the land. And I want you to understand the very seed of it is this tendency, this, this urge we have towards legitimate sexual expression that gets perverted by our sin nature. And then we give in to the lust to disobey God with it. It's the very seed of, of Baalism is fornication. And so I'm not, I'm not up there being the, 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 the no drinking and no, no gambling. I'm not, I'm not up here just preaching, saying like, if you don't do these things, then you'll be a good person. I'm saying much more importantly, this thing, this particular category of sin is universally corrupting the human race because Satan is attacking us in this area. We're sinful people in ourselves without any outside pressure. Um, good things are being corrupted by our sinful nature. And so this is a topic Paul always brings up. Fornication, all uncleanness, and in case you were, were, weren't certain that we mean all sexual malpractice and greediness. Now that's an interesting thing. Any uncleanness, I think specifically talking about sexual, but it could be just any uncleanness and greediness not to be named among you. We're not to be characterized by greed, just like the Lord Jesus taught in Matthew chapter six, you cannot serve God and wealth. And this is proper for saints, those that are set apart to God. 
Now, you know, those really holy people like in Corinth, the saints that are guilty of all those wicked sins. A saint is somebody that is a believer in Jesus and because of the work of the Spirit has been set apart positionally to God so that you're now in Christ by the baptism of the Spirit. That's a saint. That's you. So it's proper for you is what he's saying. So you need to act like your position and in chapter four, walk worthy of your calling. Obscenity, foolish talk, coarse jesting, the things that are not fitting, but rather thanksgiving. So he says, this is my list of sins that you need to not be characterized by. Fornication and uncleanness and greeting or greediness must not, must not be named among you as is proper for the saints and obscenity and foolish talk or coarse jesting, the things not fitting, but rather thanksgiving. I struggle with my sense of humor. Things are clever and funny to me that I should not laugh at. Is it only me? I like puns. I like a clever turn of phrase. It's, w- it's when someone says, do you see what I did there? You know what I mean? And you can do that with anything. And strangely, because of our sinful nature, very often our cleverness and our, and our, and our interesting puns and, and, and our humor goes here. And Paul says, no. No, don't do that. Now look what happens if you don't do that. The kids grow up with a healthy understanding just from, you know, worldview is caught as they grow up. They grow up with a healthy understanding of sexuality. They grow up with a sense of that's a marital thing. There's something mom and dad don't talk about, but they come to be aware of it. And it's not something that's dirty. It's not. It's for married people. See? See what happens? It be, this becomes dirty very quickly, but it shouldn't be. I once heard a very uh, wise um, organizer of homeschool materials uh, say that in their family, he'd raised a bunch of kids, and he said, In our family, we never tease about romance and boy and girl and you know k-i-s-s-i-n-g we never did that with the kids they need to do this right i mean we're going for a win right americans we're trying to have our boys marry girls and girls marry boys i mean you know just we're, we're, we're going for a win on um basic the basics of life and all of us know people or have family or friends that they've had to to deal with the kids losing their minds because they're taught because they have tried it because you get given over to perversion. So, so we have a very vital thing we're doing with the kids that they make good choices here. Now, if, if, if they make bad choices, it's not the end of their lives. They're still breathing. It's not the end of the world, but there are consequences to our choices. There always are. So we're trying to set them up, watch this, to make the most important decision they're gonna make after their faith in Christ. They're going to make the most important decision they'll ever make, probably before they're 25. And it's going to saddle them with their lives for the rest of their lives forever until they die. According to Jesus, whom God has joined together, let no man separate. That's God's design. And so we're asking 18-year-olds to make a decision that's going to stand them in good stead for 70 years with our excellent American health care. Think about that. Think about that. Kids in love. They got the fog. I just love you. You know, all the emotions are popping and 
not really looking at the person's character and seeing the things that the back of your head, there's like warnings going off, but no, I'm not looking. She loves me. (laughs) And um, my illustration is intended to show you how helpful what Paul's saying is. If we are careful about not teasing, not, not taking this into a place that it shouldn't be and, and putting any kind of peer pressure on people they shouldn't have, but saying, you know what, young people, romance is for marriage. Romance is toward marriage. That's what it's for. And marriage is a lifelong thing. And you are committed for life that no matter what she acts like, young men, you're supposed to love her. And young ladies, no matter what he does, check out 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. No matter what kind of of disobedient oaf he is, you're supposed to submit to him. And that's why we want to really make sure we know what we're getting into when we get married. But we feel like doing certain things that go along with being married. Yeah, that's part of the design. But you've got to think and you've got to do this well. And so there are so many obstacles. And of course, Satan's deception wants you to mess this up in every possible way. And so as Christians, we should be a safe haven for other people to come and not feel pressure about these things. Not feel, never should, should a dark thought or a dirty word of, about sexuality or sex be something of our conversation because we understand how central and how important this is. We understand how easy it is to get it wrong. We know that Satan, a roaring lion, is trying to destroy you in this area. And I think there, this is the reason, one reason, one helpful reason why uh, Paul's admo- admonishment here takes root. Now, I know at times you're going to be like, nah, but this was funny. That's not okay. No, it's not supposed to be named among us. For this, you know, that no fornicator or unclean or greedy who is an idolater has an inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and of God. Those who are characterized by these things, unbelievers, do not have an inheritance of the kingdom of God, but you do have an inheritance in the kingdom of God, so you shouldn't act like them, is Paul's point. Now, I want you to notice something that kind of jumped out at me after a a commentator pointed it out, because I didn't see it at first. There we go. Oops, I don't want that. My stick isn't working. Well, anyway. um, There's got to be a meme of a pastor trying to learn his equipment. (laughs) So I've I've got this piece of equipment. I'll, I'll give you the laser. Okay. This you know that no fornicator, that's porneia, or unclean acatharsia, or greedy person, pleonexia. These three words were already used in this sequence, in this context. Did you see it when you read? Look at verse um, three. I didn't put the numbers on this, but look at verse three. Fornication, uncleanness, got greediness. And then he says, people characterize. Now he makes a class. It doesn't mean that Christians are not capable of doing these things. It means that you are not your sin. And the truth of your position in Christ trumps your bad choices. But that's really not the point of the passage. He's saying, don't do this. That you, this, the people that are out there saying, hey, come on, let's go play are idolaters and disobedient. And they don't, because of their separation from God, have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ 
and of God, the coming kingdom of Christ and God that you belong to now in Colossians 1.13, but Jesus has to be physically present on earth for us to enjoy and rule in when he comes in his second advent. And now the next command, no one is to deceive you with empty words for on account of these sinful practices, these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. So this is very important for us to understand that your practice needs to line up with your position. And if it doesn't, then you find yourself in, uh, behaving in a way that is marked off for wrath. Now, people will say, this means you, you know, you've, lose your, you've lost your salvation. Um, that would be, I believe, empty words. I think this is to scare you and me to death of personal sin, especially lifestyle sin. We are supposed to say, as we read in Hebrews 12, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For the Lord whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges with a whip every son who he receives. So this is a category to which you and I are not supposed to belong. And that's why he says in verse 7, therefore do not be partakers together with them. Now understand, let's summarize. Paul isn't saying that you can't commit these personal sins. He's saying you must not. There's a big difference. Not that you cannot, so rest in your position in Christ, but because of your position, you need to live it out in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's going to talk about how to do that in verse 18, be filled by the Spirit with these following results. So this is, this is instruction for us, that you are making a category error when you act like an unbeliever in personal sin, especially in sexual sin or in uncleanness or in greediness or any of the things uh, that, that came out in verse four, obscenity, coarse jesting, all that stuff. So the, the, this is to scare us. I mean, in a healthy fear of the Lord, it's, you know, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God regarding personal sin. And if you don't feel that, if you're not, if you're not scared about sin, if you don't hate sin, if you don't have appropriate affections, emotions about sin, then th that's probably something you need to talk to God about. Oh, you know, I mean, I, I know I'm going to do it again and, and I'm going to confess it and God's going to forgive me and cleanse me. And it, that's not the way Paul talks about it here. He says, you're making a category error and God doesn't like that. And so the correcting rod is very painful. Does the rod of correction feel good? No, but it does comfort me. Don't leave the path because there's a whipping, y'all, when you leave the path. And on account of these sinful categories, and you're, there's another theological question you might have, and it is, how can God's wrath come upon these categories of sin if Jesus paid for all the sins on the cross? The doctrine, the biblical doctrine of the extent of the atonement that Jesus paid for all the sins of the world and has satisfied the Father regarding sin. And the answer to that question is, there's a difference between being in sin, position in sin, as he talks about in Ephesians 2.1, and, and the sin itself. And so I believe that the answer to that question is that you need to tell people, Jesus paid for your sins on the cross. And they need to receive the forgiveness that comes only when they believe in him. And that redemption is there for the believer, not for the unbeliever. And so people say, well, that wasted, you know, Christ's work on, it doesn't. Because Jesus is now sending you with a message that Christ died for you. You personalize it. 
it's not helpful for someone to say, yeah, I believe Jesus died on the cross. You need to say a couple more words. For my sins, Jesus paid for my sins on the cross. And uh, we certainly don't want to be the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers together for them. For you were before darkness, but now light in the Lord. My kids struggle with this verse. And uh, this is where we're going to close. My kids struggle with this verse. Y'all do big time. You know why? How were you when you were baptized? Six. You're. What about you? Six. Five or six. Were you baptized? Okay. Do you remember? Still got the water in your nose. All right. Wanton, wicked, nasty, dirty sinners. And then they came to Christ. Not, not by being baptized. They were Christians way before we baptized them. They believed in Jesus as their savior as soon as they could articulate those words. Do you remember? Do you remember first believing? Was there ever a time that you don't remember believing? Okay, so what I mean with this verse in verse seven, this eight, verse eight, these guys have the same experience I did. I was brought along as soon as I could understand the words. I was saying them and I was believing them because that's how little kids are. They believe their parents. And then your life is a process of growing into that. But I became a Christian as a little kid. But before I became a Christian, I was darkness. <laughs> but now I'm light in the Lord. If you've come to the Lord later in life, you have a totally different experience. We honor that. It's a beautiful thing because you can say, I know exactly what you mean. Just like the Ephesians could say before Paul came and preached Christ, they didn't know Christ. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. They weren't given spiritual gifts so that they could build up the body of Christ. But now they have been and now they are. And so they know that contrast. Some say you got to let them have the contrast. I don't agree with that because you're, you're called to disciple your children. I'm just saying there's an experience here that you're going to have to take Paul's word for it if you've been a Christian all your life. But if you've had the light turned on in your life where you remember the darkness and now you know the light, of course, that's a little bit of a different, this will have a little bit more a poignant um, sense for you. Throughout this passage, it's very simple in chapters four and five. It's very simple. You are in Christ. You have the redemption that we've talked about. And you need to act like it. That's it. Walk worthy of your calling. Now, it's awesome how he says it. All the ways we think about it. The, the, the personal sin problem. And how you're motivated by these verses not to commit personal sin. To reject personal sin. How we're supposed to think about it. This is very helpful. But the big picture is, you're new in Christ. So act like it. Walk worthy of your calling. Our Father, we thank you for this eternal life we enjoy as we think your thoughts after you, as we consider the Lord Jesus Christ, as we fellowship together in what you've said. Pray that you'll strengthen us by these things as we trust you, Father, as you need to make corrections in our hearts regarding personal sin, regarding our attitude about it. We, we wait for that. And we know that you are doing a work. It's not a work that I can do or that any of us can do in one another. We can build each other up. We can be 
uh, effective by your grace and our giftedness toward one another, but you have to do this transformation in us. And so we, as Paul prayed, we pray for it. Father, all those that, all those that are hearing, hearing my voice who may not have Christ, who may not have considered eternal life by personalizing what Jesus did for them, I pray that they would consider that Christ paid for their sins on the cross, that they have sin and no hope, and Christ had no sin and offers life through the cross. And he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Father, thank you for our so great salvation. Be with us as we uh, continue to walk together before you in the light. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.